His goodness nourishes us. And hopefully, it's teaching you and me about living a life oriented towards others. To see the hurting and the needy. To look for opportunities to be good to someone. The gospel reveals the heart and the work of God. And the more we encounter this self-giving love for us, the more we long to worship Him. With every good work, again, everyone. Pray that you're glad you came to church. I'm, a, I'm thrilled I'm here. I would come even if I didn't get paid to come. <laughs> I like this place that much. It's a great, great, awesome place to worship God, and thank you for being here. If you're online with us this morning, uh, thanks for joining in. Pray that the Spirit of God is present in your household, in your car, wherever you might be listening today, and pray that God would touch you with his, with his word. Uh, I love preaching the word of God. Uh, it is a passion of my life, and I love it when we come to these times where we get to study a book together. Um, and so, as many of you know, one of my goals is to preach through the Bible, uh, every book of the Bible, to do a study on every book before um, I retire or God takes me home. And we're getting there. We're making our way through. Uh, and so one of the ones I would like to look at over the next four weeks, one of the books of the Bible, by the way, we're going to look at Proverbs this summer. It's going to be a great study, about a 14-week study on Proverbs. Some of us need wisdom. I do. And so we're going to join in looking at Proverbs together. But this, these next four weeks, we're going to look at the book of Titus. The book of Titus, a small book toward the end of your Bible. Take your Bible out and it follows Timothy, First, Second Timothy, Titus. It's in that region. It's called one of the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus, as Paul is speaking to a couple of his young protégés, people he's mentored, and we'll talk about that more in just, just a moment. Um, the letter is written, obviously, to a guy named Titus. Thanks. I was just wanting to make sure you're still with me. Uh, to a guy named Titus from Paul. Titus is on the island of Crete. Now, um, uh, last two and a half years ago, Kathy and I had opportunity to go to uh, Crete. Uh, this is in Iraklon, uh, Crete, which is on the northern coast of Crete. And I'm standing in front of the church of St. Titus. Um, it's really interesting. Right, right behind Kathy, who's taking the picture, uh, I didn't let her join me. Right behind Kathy, who's taking the picture, is this little coffee shop. And I sat in this coffee shop in front of the Church of St. Titus. Kathy, she was doing something godly, like shopping. And so I was drinking coffee, which I consider godly as well. And I pulled up on my phone the whole letter of Titus. It's only three chapters. and was able to read it sitting there uh, in front of the Church of St. Titus. Now, on the right, uh, by the way... Uh, you'll love this. That's St. Titus's head uh, under the uh, little gold uh, thing there. Uh, it's the head of St. Titus, uh, which is in the church 
It's one of the relics that they have that established the church. And we'll talk about how his skull got there later on. But anyway, it was a great time. It's not a very big church. And if you look at it, it looks more like a mosque than a church, which is a part of what occurred when things got, the whole political turmoil of the Mediterranean over the years. Actually, uh, the Muslims took over. Uh, I say the Muslims. It's the Ottoman Empire attacked, took over, built mosques. Then um, uh, the Christians, I hate to use those terms, but, but the, it's the historical terms. Christians took it back over, converted the mosque back into the church of St. Titus, which it, is, which it is today. So take your Bibles and turn to Titus and look at the book with me, and let me just give you some background to it. I'll try not to fall into my teaching mode too much, but it's really hard for me not to. Titus is someone who was a Gentile who became a follower of Jesus Christ somehow through the ministry of Paul. We're not sure exactly where he's from. We're not sure exactly when he came to know Jesus. He's never mentioned in the book of Acts, which is kind of unique. He's only mentioned in the letters of Paul, especially in Galatians and Corinthians, 2 Timothy, and, and here. The things we know about Titus are these. One, he was a Gentile. He didn't come from a Jewish background. And so he got saved probably on the second missionary journey of Paul. We're not really sure, but we do know this. He was with Paul and Barnabas at the Jerusalem Council that's mentioned in Acts 15. So what happens, you remember, is Paul goes out, starts doing these missionary journeys. Gentiles are getting saved. And the big question that arises is, do you have to become Jewish in order to become Christian? And so at the Jerusalem Council, they made the decision that, no, you don't have to become Jewish. And the sign of being Jewish was following the law, particularly circumcision. So Paul did not have Titus circumcised. And as a matter of fact, he brings Titus with him to the Jerusalem council. We know this from the book of Galatians, uh, that Titus went with Paul as kind of a first fruit, a kind of example. Look, here's a Gentile who's come to know Jesus. Are we going to make him become Jewish in order to follow the Jesus that we serve? Now, the Jerusalem Council decided, no, don't have to become... It was one of the major decisions of the church. It opened the world to Christianity, really. It was a huge, huge decision. But Titus was really Paul's example of someone not only coming to faith, but becoming mature, being raised up in the faith. So we know that Titus was with Paul at different points in his life. We know that Titus carried the letter of 2 Corinthians from Paul to the church at Corinth. We know that he is one of the ones who came back after 1 Corinthians and said to Paul, they, they received your letter really well. And so that's how Paul writes 2 Corinthians and sends it back with Titus to Corinth. Later on, we, we know that Paul is mentoring Titus. So the island of Crete, by the way, it's not a very big island. It's just south of, south of Greece. It's about 150 miles long, about 30 miles, 30 miles wide. And it, it really is a beautiful place. It's so pretty that the guy who is our guide on this little journey that Kathy and I were on, 
He said that he lives in Greece, and Crete is where he goes to vacation. So that's how, that's how pretty the island, the island is. And it's not a small island. It's a pretty, pretty good size. Now, we don't know exactly how Christianity got to Crete. We have some ideas. For instance, we know that there were Jews from Crete present on the day of Pentecost, if you read Acts 2. So it could be that some of the people from Crete, some of the Jews who were at Pentecost and got saved, went back to Crete and started sharing Jesus with uh, their, their fellow Cretans. And, and by the way, that's a, we'll, we'll understand where that term comes from in a minute. Um, their fellow people from Crete. Uh, we also know that Paul was shipwrecked on Crete on the way to Rome. Uh, Book of Acts 27 tells us that he was shipwrecked, but he wasn't there really long enough to establish, establish a church. What most people believe is that after Paul goes to Rome and is imprisoned for a period of time, that he's set free. And during his first imprisonment, and what we assume is his second imprisonment, which is where he was probably martyred, as church tradition tells us, that he went to Crete with Titus for a period of time and started churches there. And when he leaves, he's going to leave Titus there to more fully establish the churches that are in in Crete. He's going to leave Titus. That's how much he trusts Titus by this point. So the letters to Timothy are written to encourage Timothy as a young pastor. It's thought that Titus is a little older than Timothy, though we really have no idea. But he is now in Crete, and Paul is going to write him a letter in Crete um, to tell him how to help him establish churches. By the way, there's some, a couple more things we know about Titus, and then I'll move on and get to the theme of the letter and then the points for the sermon today. But they're these. Paul in Titus says he wants um, Titus to meet him somewhere after another couple of brothers come. So at, at the end of the letter, he says to Titus, after so-and-so get here, then you come meet me in Nicopolis, which is in northern Greece. And so it's assumed that he left, leaves Crete after a period of time and goes there. Then also at the end of 2 Timothy, uh, we see that he is in what we call, what is known as modern-day Croatia. There's a, there's a mention of a city there where Timothy, is, uh, excuse me, Titus is when Paul is writing Timothy, which a lot of people think is Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy. So we... We know that he also leaves Crete after a period of time, but according to tradition, after he travels around to these various places that he goes, Croatia and Greece, he comes back to Crete and he becomes the, the leader of the churches there. And according to tradition, he lives out the rest of his life in Crete. He dies supposedly at the age of 94 and was buried in Crete, in a church, and then over periods of time there was war and earthquakes, and uh, after one war something happened in his body. They couldn't take all; they couldn't up, dig him up and take him somewhere safe, so they just took his skull uh, with them. And then when the church got established, they brought his skull back, gave it a lovely little covering, uh, put it out for for all to see. There you go. That's my lesson for on Titus. So there's a lot more we could talk about. But it just gives you some background to this man that Paul is, is writing to. And here is what I see as the theme of the book of Titus. And it's, 
Titus is almost like the James of Paul. I don't know if that makes sense. He's going to talk a lot about works, hence the title, Every Good Work. And it's un- people sometimes see James, the writing of James, the book of James, and the writings of Paul as conflicting with one another. But I don't. I see them hand in hand, working together. And in many ways, what Paul is going to say resonates with James. That's, you can go read James, but I'm going to preach on Titus. But here's the theme I think of Titus, and it's this. The good news, the gospel, which Paul is the, uh, the apostle of grace, and he's going to talk about the good news of grace, but grace, good news, results in good works. We struggle with this whole grace and works thing. And we're going to talk about it uh, just a little bit as we, we go through today and in the three weeks that come up. Uh, just as an illustration, I, I want to show you my shoes. I love these shoes. I love these shoes. Do you see? They've got like furry stuff inside. Uh, they're really, really warm. As a matter of fact, I'm going to put them on. Um, they're really warm. They're my cold weather shoes. Um, and so, hey, thanks. I should have thought, oh, I'm going to take my shoe off and put this other one on. These are my cold weather shoes because they're furry, they're warm, they've got this nonstick bottom, so like snow, ice, those days, those are the days I wear these shoes. And I can't tell you how much I love these shoes. They are awesome shoes. You, you get the point? I like my shoes. The problem is my wife hates these shoes. She does not like these shoes at all. Every time I put these shoes on, it's like, I can't believe you. Are you going out in public in those shoes? And I said, well, they're for snow and ice. I mean, unless it's coming in the house, yeah, I'm going to wear them outside. And so this week we had this this discussion about my shoes again, because it was cold and snowy and icy, right? So what other day are you going to wear your shoes on? So I went to the office in my shoes. and I said, Kathy, what is the problem with, with my shoes? And she goes, they make you look like an old man. And then we started this discussion about if her concern was that I was looking old or that she was with a man who was looking old and people might think she was old. (laughs) Do you understand the point? We got into this whole discussion. Are you really concerned about my looks that much? Or are you concerned about my looks because they make you look? This is the discussion of grace and works. There's a no win. She still hates the shoes. But the discussion about grace and works is like that. It goes, you can't have one without the other. We think they're two different things. And Paul's going to make it clear. I'm going to preach in these the rest of the day. Hey, by the way, after we had this discussion the other night, I look up. I'm sitting in my chair reading my book. My wife comes walking across the den. She's wearing my shoes. Turn to Titus 3, and I'm going to give you the theme verses for 
for this. And then I'm going to go back and look at some passages in chapter 1. But I consider these the theme of Titus. Chapter 3, verses 5 and 8. I'm reading from the ESV because it uses the term good works, uh, which I like that discussion. Here's what Paul says. He says, he saved us not because of works done by us. All right, let's settle this right here. You are not going to do anything good enough to get yourself right before God. Paul makes it clear in Romans. He makes it clear in Ephesians. The Bible is absolutely clear on this word. You can not earn your way into God's presence. He saved us not because of works done for us, by us in righteousness, but how? According to his own mercy. It's all by the grace and mercy of God that we are saved. It's everything about him. He goes on to say, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, and here's the phrase that Paul uses over and over again throughout his passages, being justified by his grace. We are made right. We are declared just before God by his grace. It comes, it comes as a merciful act. It's nothing we can ever do, nothing we, I know I'm hammering this point, but please, 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 this is critical for us to understand that nothing we do can get us right in God's sight. So once God declares you right and God declares you just, what do you have to do to stay right in God's sight? It's a trick question, by the way. Don't even want to answer out loud. You don't have to do anything. Wait a minute. This sounds really tricky. You mean I don't have to? No, no, no. To stay in God's presence, you didn't earn your way there, right? It's a gift. What kind of stinking gift is a gift if you have to earn it? That's called a wage, right? If you work for something and you earn it, that's what you deserve. A gift is something that's just given. God's gift to us is that we've been washed, we've been declared right, we've been declared just. We as Christians sometimes think, okay, I was, he declared me right, he declared me just, now to stay here, I have to do all this stuff. Theologically, that's not true. Theologically, he did it all and he continues to do it and he will continue to do it. That's why I think Paul says in Romans, what can separate me from the love of Christ? It makes this long list. Nothing. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Why? Because God's, God's got a hold of me. I don't have a hold of God. Right? This is really critical for some of us. We wake up in the morning thinking, okay, God saved me. Now I have to do this or God's going to be mad at me or he might kick me out or he's going to... He's going to do this bad stuff to me. God loves you. God loved you when you were still at war with him. God loved you when you were still a sinner. He loves you when you're part of his family. He loves you. You got it? Okay, hang on then. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you... These are the next two verses, by the way. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to do what? Devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. You're saying, wait a minute. You tricked us again. 
You said, I don't have to do anything to stay in God's presence. It's just as true now as when I said it two minutes ago. It's still true. But what Paul is saying is the outworking of grace in my life will be good works. See, the difference is this. We think we have to work to get grace in us. Can't be done. It can't be done in any way. Grace is the gift of God. But once it's in us, it should work its way out and change the way we, the way we live, change the way we view things. So this morning, I want to look at this idea of grace and work and just kind of look at it from the beginning. This is the key passage, really, this chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Gabriel's going to preach on this uh, chapter in a couple of weeks, um, but... I hope I didn't steal everything from you, Gabe, for that time. Uh, but let's go back and look at uh, the opening of the, of the book. And the first thing I want us to see is the greatness, the greatness of God's grace. And even saying it is just so underwhelming considering how great it is. You just can't even put into words what is great about the grace of God. Opening of the, the, the book, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the, faith, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Hang on to that phrase, leads to godliness. It, it's pretty critical, but I'll come back to it. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. Goes on and says, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Paul is just kind of introducing himself, introducing the gospel, introducing things. And then he goes on to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. We read these openings like this and we just kind of skim them because they all sound so much alike in Paul. But when he brings those terms grace and peace together, it's an unusual greeting for a letter. And he starts by saying grace, charis, the grace of God, the unmerited favor, the gift of God by mercy. We, as we've seen in this book already, we are saved entirely by the grace of God. And so he's... He's saying to Titus, remember this grace. It's all about God's grace. For all have sinned, according to Romans, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. This is why the gospel is such not only good news, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. By the way, Paul has spent three chapters getting to this point of telling you how, how bad you are and that nothing you can do will ever get you to God. Nothing. But God gave it to you freely. It's a gift of grace that is given to you. And if that weren't enough, if, if that weren't enough that God's grace did this for me, there are other passages that talk about the power of grace. He, Back in Titus, he said, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He's, he's, he's saying God has, God has made you right with him 
And now God's grace gives you the power to live life every day. It's so overwhelming, so powerful in your life that you live it every day. He's talking about heirs and co-heirs and future, past, present, future. One point Paul has a problem which everyone speculates what his thorn in the flesh is. But whatever, he, he prays a lot for it to get removed. And God says, no, I'm not going to take it. You know, have you, ever, have you ever had those prayers where you prayed to God for something and the answer was no? Sometimes that's, you know, if you're praying for something to God, God is sovereign. That's, that could be his answer. But instead what he tells Paul is this, my grace is sufficient for you. I know you want this out, but let me just say this. My grace is even better than getting that out. Have you ever thought about that? He's saying, my grace is so great. It's better than me taking away the problem. Because as you lean into my grace, it's going to be better than if I took the problem away from you. And he goes on, my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul, therefore, I'm going to boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest in me. Here's what I think Paul is saying about grace. It is so great that it empowers me to live life. It's my hope for the future. It it gives me joy. It goes joy beyond my circumstances, joy beyond my thorn, whatever that might have been. It's the joy of my life. Could it be that if we're not experiencing the joy of God, what we're not really resting in is his grace? We're thinking there's something more God's holding out on me. I'm not getting all I deserve. Let me just back up just a little, just tiny bit and say, praise God, I'm not getting what I deserve. You know, really, that's the gospel, that the best you got is filthy rags. So praise God you're not getting what you deserve. But instead, what you get is the free gift of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God poured out on you. We cannot underestimate the greatness of God's grace. If we try to live the Christian life in any other way, we'll result in being legalists. And Paul is going to come hard against this in just a minute. Instead, we rest on the grace of God. Here's the problem with the grace message in the church today. Sometimes if you preach the grace message, it becomes so overwhelming that it it sounds like, wait a minute, I can do anything I want because God's grace. I, I can't do anything, I can't do anything to earn God's grace, therefore it doesn't matter what I do. Because God's grace is going to cover because it's past, present, future, right? You see how you could take this to an extreme? And that Paul is coming solid against this in this book, I think. He's saying, yeah, God's greatest greatness is so great. We're going to get to that second part in just a second. But then he talks about the presence of peace in our lives, grace and peace from God the Savior. If you're experiencing the grace of God in its fullest context, you should be walking in the peace of God. And he combines a Greek term and a Jewish Hebrew term, keres shalom, he, he combines these two to bring them together to talk about the grace of God and the peace of God. Here's the thing about the grace of God. We, because of God's grace and his mercy toward us, 
we have, we have peace with God. This is, whether we know it or not, this is our biggest problem. We're at war with God. When we're sinners, we're at war with God. Some of us don't know we're at war with God, but we're still at war with God. You know, there have been people who lived in countries that were at war with other countries, and they didn't even know there was a war going on unless an enemy soldier came in. Then they knew. They thought they might have been hiding out or been safe from the war because they were isolated. But listen, when, when war is at your doorstep, you know you're in a war. And you're, to get prepped for the war, it's too late if the enemy is there. Now, the, the difficulty is God, because of our sin, we are at war with him. We're at enmity with him. We're at opposition to him. And Paul is saying that through the grace of God, we have been made right. We have been justified. How are we justified? Through faith and grace alone. Therefore, we have peace with God. We have peace with him. We can rest because of our relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And that peace should, we've talked about this at Christmas time. I, I preached on peace, so I don't want to repeat myself. And I can't say the P anymore. So anyway, we just want to stay at rest with God. Not only that, but it will lead us to be content. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So, Americans, don't worry about how much money you've got. Be content with what you have. That is so countercultural for us, isn't it? To think we can... Isn't this, there this discontent? I mean, you can feel it most of the time. I need more. I need more. I need more. How much more? Just a little. I just need more than what I've got. I need more in my 401k. I need more in my retirement. I need more in my bank account. I need more in my house. I need more, more, more. Because we're being fed this more, 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 more all the time. Listen, God, I think God wants to give you more, but more importantly, he wants you to learn to be content with what you have. Why? Because when you get a little bit more, you're still not going to be content. And you're still going to want a little bit more. So if you can learn to be content with what you have, then if you get some more, you'll be content with that too. And you'll be content with more. And really good news, if you get less, you'll still be content right? Because your contentment is not in your resources. The presence of peace. Do we not need peace in our lives? I, I, would, I would contend that one of the greatest needs of our heart is to tap into the position that we are of peace with God and the contentment with what we have. Here's the point three that I'm really leading to, and I'll try not to dwell on it too long, but it's really critical. And it's this. This is the challenge of change. See, God wants us to be Christ-like. Back in verse 1, at the introduction, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that what? That what? It leads to godliness. It, it directs us to godliness. 
And in this case, godliness is not merely a position with God. It's, it's the outworking of God's grace in our lives, where we act in a manner that is godly. We change, not because we're trying to get God's grace, but because it can't help but change us. I'm going to skip down to verse 10. I'm going to come back to verses 5 through 9 in chapter 1. If you're looking at your Bible, you're like, he skipped for like four verses. Yeah, I skipped them, but I'll come back to them. Um, I'm going to come back to him next week because he's going to talk about leaders. But here he is addressing the people. He's addressing Titus about the people that he's ministering to. And let me just walk us through these next six verses. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, um, he's, he's saying that there are people, the circumcision party, by the way, is just a euphemism for the Jews, the Judaizers. And so what has happened is, even though it was settled back in Acts 15 that you don't have to become Jewish to become Christian, there's a group of people who followed Christ from Judaism who said, no, 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 we're not going to accept that view. We, we believe you still have to become Jewish to become Christian. So they would many times follow Paul wherever he went and said, hey, what the guy's telling you, it's partially true, but you've got to become Jewish before you can become Christian. It's driving Paul crazy. Some people think it could have been his thorn in the flesh. It was the Judaizers who were, who were following him. And he's saying, listen, there are those among who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Here's the idea of the circumcision party. That idea is this. If you want to be made right with God then you have to do X, Y, Z. You have to follow the law. You have to do this. The way to get right from God, yeah, Jesus is good, and we're going to follow him, great teacher, but if you really want to get right with God, you have to do this. This is who Paul is writing against in this book of Titus. He's writing to say, look, none, none of your acts can make you right. If you try to follow Judaism or any other legalistic or any other path, that will try and get you right with God, you can't do it. It can't, be, it can't be done. And those who are telling you that they can be done, they're empty talkers, deceivers. Now, you think Paul gets strong now, just hang on. He goes, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they, uh, for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And, and apparently, in this case, they're also taking up an offering. They're, they're not only teaching you have to be legalistic, but part of the legalism is probably you got to tithe to me somewhere in there. And so they're taking up gain. Probably part of the legalism is if you really want to be in, you got to be circumcised, you got to follow the law, and you got to give me something. Then he goes on and he shifts the conversation and he says this. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> this is one of the funniest passages to me in the whole Bible. Basically, Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, let me tell you about the, people, the church I've given you. 
let me tell you about the people you're going to minister to. One of their own prophets, not me, I didn't say this. One of their own prophets says that the people of Crete are always, always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Oh, by the way, it's true. <laughs> they are. By the way, in the, in the ancient Roman world, to be called a Cretan was to be someone who was a thief or a liar or a deceiver. I was going to joke a couple of weeks ago that about, you know, my whole bed, making my bed thing, that I wasn't a Cretan because um, I can make my own bed. Anyway, but Cretans are like this. This is who Paul has given Titus to minister to. These are your people, Titus. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. All right, here's what you're going to... Here's the minister. And this guy's a young minister too, right? This is not like, oh, go preach the gospel of prosperity. Instead, rebuke them sharply. Show them the error of their ways. And you're like, wait a minute, wasn't Paul supposed to be holding out this grace message? Well, he is, but he's trying to say God's grace working its way out through us will change the way we live. Here's the point. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Now, some of you may be saying, wait a minute here. Everything's pure? He's, he's overstating to make a point. To say this, look, you can, two different people can look at the same circumstance and same situation. To the one who's pure, they'll look at it in a light that reflects their heart. To the impure, they can still be looking at the exact same thing. And again, the darkness is going to be reflected in the way they interpret the situation. And he's saying, only by God's grace is his purity going to be released in your life. Listen to me carefully. Here is one of the downfalls of the purity culture in America in the last 30 years. It's this. If you act in this way, you'll be pure. Hello? Hello? Some of you haven't been alive that long, right? You weren't around to I Kissed Dating Goodbye or or some of the books that went along with what was called the purity culture of the 90s, early 2000s. Look, I, I liked it too. I believed it, yes. Save sex for marriage kind of thing. Don't. But the promise it held out was this. The promise was, if you act pure, you will be pure. Can I tell you that's a lie? Why? Because purity doesn't come from actions. Purity comes from the grace of God working its way out from within you. The action will still be there. The shoes will still be ugly, right? I mean, you can judge why they're, they're not ugly. I don't care. Um, the point being this, that to the pure, all things are pure. Why? Because God has changed them from the inside out. To the impure, even trying to act pure will be impure. You can't be made pure through your actions. And it, it held out this, this promise. Oh, if you stay pure, you're going to find the man or woman of your dreams. 
They're going to be awesome. You're going to live a godly life. It's going to be incredible. The fruit of your life is going to be awesome because you're both pure. The problem, again, is that neither of them were pure. Why? Because purity doesn't come from outward actions. Purity comes from a state of the heart. Now, I'm, please, don't go the other way and say, oh, I heard Pastor Bart say we don't have to be pure. I can, go act, I can go sleep with whoever I want. I can do whatever I want. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to say, though, if you're trying to work it from outside in, you're sunk. But if you let it work its way from inside out by the grace of God, it's life-giving. It's powerful. Augustine. Augustine. Did I read that whole passage? Did I finish that? Um, Augustine. Of Hippo was he, he resisted the grace of God for years. It's, it's rumored that he resisted it for 15 years. He was overwhelmed by lust. He lived with a concubine. His mother prayed for him all the time. And it's only by reading the book of Romans and through other passages of Paul that he experienced the grace of God and was set free. I mean, God set him free from 15 years or more, of living basically, I don't want to say a pornographic life, but I don't know how other way to, to put it. He frequented prostitutes, he, the internet of his day. He was like, you know, actively engaged in sexual sin. And then he experienced the grace of God, which he called sovereign joy. God's grace, God's sovereign joy overwhelmed me. And then Augustine, his whole life changed. He, 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 he lived a totally different life, becoming one of the, both the great scholars, great church fathers, battling against heresies of the, his day. But one of his prayers that has impacted me over the, the years is this. God, command what you wish, but give what you command. Command me to do anything you want. But I believe in your grace that when you do, you'll give me what I need to fulfill your command. Here's the problem. We read a passage. We see something and we say, God's commanding this. Now I got to go do it. This is one of the truths. God's grace and God's presence that changed my life was when I was in my 20s. I had tried to live up until that point into my 20s, the Christian life out of my own strength, my own might, my own power. Can I get an amen from anyone who was saved as a child and then tried to live the Christian life? You know, you go to church, you tithe, you know, you don't, you don't drink, you don't sleep around, you don't. H.L. Mencken once said, a Puritan is a person who has this nagging fear that someone somewhere is having fun. That's what I believed I was raised in. That, that, that atmosphere like, okay, if it's fun, it's got to be a sin. Don't do it. And I reached my 20s thinking, this Christian life is not all it's cracked up to be. I, I am not experiencing what Kathy read to you at the opening of the service, the fullness of joy. At your right hand, there's fullness of joy. I was trying not to sin but I wasn't experiencing any joy or happiness from my life. And listen, in my view, I would be put on, um, I would be put on a pedestal of good Baptist boys. 
You know what I mean? I, I, that's the kind of life I live. But it was miserable. Only when I opened myself up to the grace of God and the person of the Holy Spirit did I realize I was never told to live the Christian life by myself. I was never empowered to live the Christian life. It is God's grace. God, command me what you will, but give me your presence. Give me your power. Give me what I need to live the Christian life. And I got to tell you, it was life-changing for me. Life-changing. When I realized that God empowers me with his presence to live the Christian life personally and corporately, together. And Paul is saying to Titus, teach these people that the grace of God changes them and washes them pure. And that as a result of the grace of God by the washing of the Holy Spirit that empowers them, live godly lives. I'm not going to command you to live a godly life if I'm not going to give you my presence, which will empower you to do it. But I have, and you can, and it'll bring joy, sovereign joy to your life. Here's what Paul is saying about grace, I think. The means of grace is what? God's mercy. It's his gift. How long is this grace last? It, praise God, it lasts forever. It's not a temporary deal. The presence of this grace manifests itself in peace. I have peace with God. Peace with, I've got peace with myself. I can have peace with others. We'll get to that in the days ahead. The effect of grace in my life is godliness. Paul is going to go on and say so strongly that these people who are saying that they are living godly lives, I mean, that they're followers of God, their life demonstrates that they're not. Pretty strong. We'll look at that in the days ahead. But here's the challenge of change. We need to embrace God's grace because it brings hope, brings clarity. Not only that, but he's going to say to them, appoint leaders, he's going to say to Titus, appoint elders and leaders who hold on to this grace message and this godliness message and have demonstrated with their lives that they have experienced the grace of God by the godly way they live. Love godliness for the beauty it gives and the unity it provides. It gives lives and the unity it provides. And then, as a result of the this gospel, this grace, we should share it with everybody. It should burst out from within us to be shared with the world. We're not hanging on to it for ourselves. Another recipient of the grace of God, besides Augustine, another major church leader, was Luther who was studying, whereas Augustine was like, I'm going to have nothing to do with the Christian life. I'd rather stay with my mistress, frequent prostitutes, have a good time, drink, eat, drink, and be merry. He, he was not even trying till God touched his life and freed him. Luther, on the other hand, was trying to be a priest and trying to do it by his own might, own strength, own power. He was trying to live the the Christian life on his own, and he was miserable. He was sick. He was miserable. He, too, read the book of Romans, experienced the freeing grace of God, and he talks about, his problem was this. If I lean into God's grace for a period of time, is God's grace going to run out? 
How much grace is there for me? How much grace is there for us? And Luther finally came to a point where he said, Christ our Lord, to whom we must flee and of whom we must ask all, is an interminable well, the chief source of all grace. Even if the whole world were to draw from this fountain enough grace and truth to transform all people into angels, still, it would not lose as much as a drop. This fountain constantly overflows with sheer grace. People, I want to encourage you today. Receive the grace of God in all its just power. Walk in peace as a result. Be content. Because you're at peace with God, you can be at peace with others, you can be at peace with yourself. And let this grace and peace work its way out through you to change your life, to live in joy and power. I love this message. I mean, I love this message. Because this is the hope of the gospel. This is it. If we don't get this, we won't get anything else. There's a lot of other stuff we can talk about and teach, but if you don't get this, you won't get all, you won't get any of that. Because it'll all be measured against legalism. It'll all be measured against something else. And we need to walk in the power and the grace of God. Lord, we thank you this morning for your grace. Lord, I I I know because of my own life that there are people here today who are not walking in grace. They're trying to please you. They're trying to live the Christian life. They're, they're exerting incredible effort. They're going through, through some sort of uh, religious rituals in order to try and get you to, to be happy with them and live at peace with them. They're scared that they're going to do something to screw up and you're going to be mad at them and you're going to kick them out. And so they're living in terror of you. And I pray instead, Lord, that today we would come fully face-to-face with the amazing grace of God, the gift of God, the power of God to change our lives. Lord, may we walk in freedom. May we walk in life. And Lord, as a result, may we walk in godliness. Let grace work its way out through us to change who we are. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing of the grace of God um, as we receive our offering. But uh, Gabriel's going to come. He's going to set it up. He's going to give you some opportunities for service. He's going to introduce some new people to you. And then let's sing of God's grace before we leave today.